1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Sarah Austin, the author of Monstrous Youth, Transgressing the Boundaries of Childhood in the United States. Uh, Sarah, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you. I'm excited. Could you start by talking a little bit about how this book came to be and how you started writing about these monstrous youth? Monstrous youth. Yes, absolutely. So I have a tiny human.
0: And my tiny human was in kindergarten and first grade at the height of Monster High excitement. Um, I still probably have 70 Monster High dolls in a box in the back of a closet somewhere in my house. Um, But my kid wanted to watch all of the straight to DVD Monster High movies that came out that were on Netflix. And so one day I sat down with them to watch one of these Monster High movies on Netflix. And I couldn't tell you the name of it for the life of me, but we started watching it. It was this movie about they were integrating monster high with this vampire prep school. And there was some tension because like vampires used to enslave werewolves who were a large percentage of the the monster high student body population. And it's the, the werewolves are like very much coded black in the show. Um, They have mostly black voice actors and they have like a sort of street fashion edge to them. And I was like, okay, is this really happening? Are we using monsters to, like, talk about integration? And then you find out that really all of the problems that are happening in the Monster High integration are because Van Helsing, who's a human, is trying to pit the monsters against each other to so that they're infighting, so that, like, humanity can rise. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. So this is class struggle, right? Like, the 1% pitting, like, the... the racial groups against each other in order as like i can't with this with all of the things that are happening and this like 45 minute animated so is this what all of monster high is like yes the answer is yes that is what all of monster high which is a vehicle for mattel to sell fashion dolls right with like little plastic shoes and so from there i was like is is all monster culture like this i must know and it just sort of spiraled
1: (laughs) You ran down that rabbit hole. So, far. <laughs> so before we sort of get into because you sort of look at this, um starting in the 50s and, and going all the way up to the present. Before we get into this, could you talk a little bit, maybe um, sort of ground us in sort of monster theory, monster, you know, studies, maybe that's the best, you know, and, and where you're sort of sitting in.
0: Yeah. So Monster Studies is an interdisciplinary field that I learned existed um, in about 2010 um, when I started doing this work. And it is interdisciplinary. There are people who do this work in, you know, literature and pop culture and psychology and medicine. And a lot of it is really grounded in either the Victorian Right. Because that's when a lot of these monsters come to be, um, you know, vampires and um, mummies and werewolves, etc. cetera, um, really enter Western popular culture during this period through things like Penny Dreadful novels and, you know, Dracula, like the book um, comes out. And then other monster study stuff is really grounded in ancient war- like ancient Greek mythology specifically because that's apparently the origin of werewolves and like the Greeks thinking that there were people to the east who had their faces in their stomachs um and so a lot of that work is a lot older than the stuff that I was interested in doing and so when you're talking about monsters as representations physical representations of cultural fear right um most of the work that that I was reading was either grounded in the ancient world or grounded in Victorian England, and so because so much of childhood studies is also grounded in Victorian England, I was like, oh, this this fits really nicely, and so updating it wasn't hard, um, like bringing it into, you know, the the 1950s to present. But if you're reading the book and you're like, why is so much of this stuff set in like the 1880s and 1890s? That that's why. <laughs>
1: That's what happened <laughs> So so you pull us forward with this right and, and and you're like you said, you're looking at sort of children and representations for ch- youth as well as teens, young adults. So you start with the 1950s and kind of horror comics and teen horror television or film. and so can you talk a little bit about that um, that this sort of entering this more modern space and what was going on in the 1950s right. So there's a little
0: bit of tension about when the first time the term teenager appeared in print. Um, Different sources will have different dates, but it's either 1942 or 1948. So it's very much like, and, you know, right around World War II um, is when we first start seeing in print the term teenager, like when that's even coined in the U.S. And direct marketing to teens really started... Post war, like late 40s, early 50s. So the book starts there because that's the first time that we see marketers, television, film, fashion, music really recognize that young people, perhaps for the first time, have disposable income and are the ones who are setting cultural trends. Right. Like if you want the cool new record, it's the teenagers you have to get on your side. If you want to make money in the theaters, it's the kids who are going on dates that you want to come see your film. So, because there's a lot of tension between the generations, right? Generational wars are not new, Um, but there's a lot of tension between young people who went to fight or who were working on the home front then after the war adults trying to treat them as children again and they're like no that's not that's not us we're not interested in disney movies you know we're not interested in the things that had traditionally sort of been the hallmarks of childhood innocence we are grown ups we need rights and we need to be recognized as such culturally and that combined with the sort of direct marketing influence creates a new kind of identity in the 50s right like teenagers really become a thing at that moment and uh grown-ups freak out a little bit like they're not prepared (laughs) at all for young people to have autonomy and like make demands on them about how they should be able to determine the directions that culture goes so it also like fits really well with like there's so much monstrous stuff happening for young people in the 50s and 60s, partially because that's a good way for young people to express themselves and also because adults are like, oh, these monstrous children. (laughs)
1: That's kind of where
0: it goes.
1: (laughs) Right. And you talk about this idea of infrequment, And can you talk a little bit about that and and what you were kind of seeing and what was happening in the 1950s with that?
0: Yeah. So freakment is a term that comes out of disability studies. Um, specifically, Rosemary Garland Thompson um, uses it to talk about traveling freak shows, right? Around the turn of the century and how you would have someone who had visible physical difference, right? Like they have a genetic disorder that creates, you know, they're very hirsute or they're um, small or like there's a lot of different ways, but what she says is that physical difference isn't really that big a deal. Like It's not revelatory in this new way. And so the reason why traveling freak shows appeal to people is because they have costumes and narratives and advertising that they use to turn someone with minor visible physical difference into a freak. And so you go to the show, And you look at the person on stage or sometimes in the cage, right? Human zoos or a whole thing. And you're like, oh, I'm normal because I'm not that. And that's how infreakment works, right? It creates the normal in opposition to the body that has been deemed a freak and has been constructed, right, as a freak through all of these external things. And so in the 1950s, that's what happens to teenagers, Right. Specifically through the juvenile delinquency hearings and um, like Estes Kefauver and the whole like, you know, having these huge horror comic covers um, with, you know, an axe murderer with a decapitated head in one hand and and an axe bloody axe in the other. And he's like, is this appropriate for children? And William Gaines is like, I mean, it's appropriate for the cover of a horror comic. Look, the blood's not dripping. You can't see the stump of the neck. Like, what do you want from me? And so it's this moment of taking something that is different, right? Teenagers are different from adults, but creating them as freaks, as saying they are potentially a threat. They are potentially dangerous. We are normal. They are strange. And doing that through the, you know, um, senatorial hearings in such a way that it becomes this
1: cultural movement of, oh, no, the monstrous children. <laughs> and I love when you're talking about that and the, the sort of the freak show aspect i love that um one of the things you talked about with the films is that they would sort of send here's how to set your lobby like here's how to even present it's not just a film experience it's a walk into the theater like 360 experience i love kind of thing i love it so much um i went to um
0: the uc riverside library they have this like huge Um, archives and you can just go through old newspapers and I'm just like pawing through stuff for days and days and they have newspaper clippings from the advertisements and so like when um, I was a teenage Frankenstein came out they printed little Frankenstein masks that you would give the kids and you would hold it up with a popsicle stick and it'd be Frankenstein on one side and then it'd have all of the information for when and where the film was on the back and so it was advertising. They'd put bloody footprints all over town leading to the theater for buckets of blood to get people in. There was one where they had like, you had to sign an insurance policy that if you died from fright during the film, like they would pay. It's just, it's absurd and ridiculous and delightful.
1: Yes. I was like, these are awesome. I love them so much. Uh, But then they, but these small theaters then move or these, you know, they move from putting this together Um into the beach blanket bingo sort of surfer film, right? So we start with this and then we move into a whole new Mickey Mouse Club y kind of um surfer party. I mean, you say Mickey Mouse Club and
0: like Annette Finicello was in one of them, but man, Mickey Mouse Club did not like those beach blanket movies. Like they adults didn't like them either. And honestly, they would have been band like censorship would have happened with those beach, beach blanket movies if it hadn't been for the monster films that adults didn't take seriously and because they were like the monster is a tea kettle with holes in it it's not that big a deal like that rhetoric is how they got so much stuff past the censors that honestly like monster teen films essentially killed the haze code and that's why we got those beach blanket movies afterwards, because there just wasn't enough political will to censor teenagers after that.
1: And, and so you start in the, the 50s, but then move into sort of the 60s and 70s um, and looking at picture books, right? So we start with kind of film and comics, but then you look at this sort of the ways in which racial, I think you say racialized anxiety, right? Like um, comes into these picture books. So can you talk a little bit about what you started to see with these earlier picture books and what was going on?
0: Yeah. So, I, I mean, honestly, the root of all of this is that we're really uncomfortable talking about sex. And we're so uncomfortable talking about children and sex or teenagers and sex. And if you start talking about like teenagers and interracial sex in the distant sirens. Um, and so what happens in the 60s is we are so concerned socially about the infiltration of the white family unit by this racial other that we get a ton of picture books in the sixties about white families. And there's this monster coming in either the nightmare in the closet or the monster under the bed, or it's coming into your dreams. And the monster is very much the racial other. And what we're, we're kind of really talking about is the infiltration of the white family space through interracial marriage or interracial sex. But like, we can't say that. So we do it through, picture books about monsters coming into the coming into the bedroom it's always the bedroom coming into the bedroom and infiltrating that white family yeah it's not it's
1: not real subtle if you think about it I know in, in reading it out there are some things I would, but there was one book that I can't remember you might the book about the rabbits there's a white rabbit and yeah. a black rabbit family the like rabbits wedding that, Yes, that was kind of amazing. I mean, in a horrific way, but like, right. So <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the rat So this is just one great example. I mean, I don't know if it's great, but an example of sort of these picture books. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and The the Rabbit's Red Wedding isn't even a monster book, right? It's it's about animals. And you also have like uh, this whole tradition in Children's Lit of animal books being about race when we don't want to talk about race. Um, and we really don't want to talk about race in the 60s. <laughs> like, really? It's very uncomfortable. Um, so there's this picture book called The Rabbit's Wedding, and in the book, there's a black rabbit and a white rabbit. And they get married, and it's super cute, and they, like, dance under the moon, and the black rabbit looks like he's wearing a tuxedo, and the white rabbit looks like she's wearing a wedding dress, and she has little flower crown right it's like very like early 60s adorable nostalgic childhood people lost their minds um the state of Mississippi banned it like actively tried to be fair they also tried to ban Sesame Street so you know that's the thing um but like banned it because they were like interracial rabbits um but what really upset people um was the idea that somehow the interracial rabbits, would lead to communism. Because interracial marriage was a communist plot to weaken white blood. And so my favorite is the New York Times editorial where he's like, just give children crayons. And through yellow and green, they can remove any trace of red. Just let them color in the rabbits and it will be fine. Um, But there was this, it's really interesting how like children's literature and concerns about like interracial marriage and the Red Scare all just sort of dovetail in this strange political moment where you have people in the Mississippi Statehouse literally afraid to say they don't care about the, the black and white rabbit picture book because they think they will be run out of town if they don't take a firm stance against the communist interracial rabbits.
1: And one of the things like you kind of look at, so like using this picture book, using these examples, coming to the monsters is like how then the rhetoric in these monster books kind of brings us back to kind of a a white supremacy and and really a white male supremacy. Um, Even in the texts that are uh, maybe trying to be a little more thoughtful about race, we still are seeing these these kind of tropes going on.
0: Yeah, and I think part of that is just because we can't talk about what we're really concerned about. Like we we can't say race in these picture books because they won't get published. Libraries won't buy them, people won't read them. You know, we can't talk about interracial marriage in these picture books. And because you have things sort of in the air, Like the the Monahan report, right? Which says, bless his heart, he was so close. He was like, you know, race is really a problem, and people of color in the U.S. really don't have opportunities. And you're like, yeah, yeah, go on. And he takes a sharp left into, and it's all black women's fault. You're like, oh, sweetie, oh, we were almost there. Um, and that's that's kind of how like all of this is working. Like they're so close, they're so close. They're like, yeah, we really need to think about race, and we really need to think about integration, and like. The, the monstrous, you know, quote unquote monstrous other isn't really a threat. And then there's always a uh, sharp left into, you know, what's great colonialism. Like, but if we just, if we're just white people, especially white men are just the arbiters of like, who has access to resources, all of this will be fine. Oh,
1: <laughs> I don't think they did. How's, that, how's that working for you now? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, the other thing you mentioned was, you, you know, it was Sesame Street to bring us into sort of what was happening, like, the late 70s. And I, I'm i not sure if many people have really paid attention to early Sesame Street. <laughs> um, That is really much more radical than, yeah. right, when you think about Sesame Street. So can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing with, like, Sesame Street and monsters and this monster culture, like, bringing us from the 70s into the 80s and
0: yeah, early Sesame Street is so radical and I think people just don't know um, how very very radical it is. I mean they had a native woman, a tribally enrolled native woman breastfeeding on television in the early 70s. I mean it was it, it's the things things that I think you definitely couldn't do today. Um, and so you had so many people, In the early days of Sesame Street, who were really committed to social justice, who were really committed to accurate and empathetic portrayals of children of color on television for those children, like this was a show that was made for kids, you know, Latinx kids, black kids, indigenous kids. Oftentimes in poorer urban areas who are going to be watching television, they didn't have access to, you know, the fancy preschools that the suburban white kids had. And so this was preschool for them. And not only is the project itself in some ways very radical, those early shows really are. And one of the things that's so radical about them is they have monsters, but the monsters aren't stand-ins for Black children. You also have Black children on screen who talk to them. The monsters are just monsters, Um, which is like kind of odd for the 60s and early 70s, right? It's not a thing we said where they're like, no, we're going to talk about race. It's going to be here. We're going to have representations of Black children. They aren't going to be the monsters. We're going to have monsters. They're going to be separate. It's great. Um, Makes me very happy. And I think a lot of the reasons that you see that is because a lot of the writers for early Sesame Street are Black, are Latinx are indigenous folks. And so the fact that the people who are controlling that narrative who are telling those stories are people of color is why you don't have that elision between children of color and the monstrous other. They are separate things. They can interact, but they are not the same. Um, And then, you know, things like uh, the monster at the end of this book where lovable Furiel Grover realizes that he's the monster and like he has that moment of existential crisis, bless his heart. At the end and he's like oh I'm so embarrassed that's so interesting to me right because it's doing I, again I don't think they meant to I don't know that that's what they intended but this moment of like the monstrous child realizing that that's the way that society sees them right that that's the way they're being constructed and then being like oh but I'm
1: but I'm not scary I'm just
0: me yeah
1: and and we move from this like this this great moment in the sixties and seventies to the moral panic of the eighties, and I want to thank you for like bringing reminding me again of the whole satanic ritual. Like I was like, you know, I forgot this existed. And, and I li- like I lived that right, like I was there in that moment, right? You know, we we can't play Dungeons and Dragons, we can't do any of this. Satan's coming to take us all away. Um, so, like, yes, we come into I blame Ronald Reagan for it all, but we come into the eighties, right, and this moral panic. So, can you talk a little bit about sort of what was happening in the eighties, and then how this um, and the idea of this sort of middle class material culture. Um, that we get to.
0: Yeah, I mean, part of it is because we can't have nice things. So, whenever we get to a moment of like real sort of like rev- social revelation where we're like, oh, um we shouldn't be talking about black children as a monstrous other. We should just like let them write their own stories and we should value them as humans. um Then the 80s was like, no, no, mm-mm, no, we can't do that. That's not going to happen. Um, but also, I think what happened in the early 1980s is, like, we realized as a country that child abuse existed. Uh, and it, that you would think, like, well, obviously, that's always... But we didn't have a National Missing Children's Registry in the 1980s. You know, we didn't have... We didn't talk about or acknowledge child abuse as, as a thing. Um, and so we sort of, like, realized right? That children were being abused in the home and freaked out about it. And we're like, we don't know what to do. And this is at the same time where white middle-class women are entering the workforce in large numbers, right? Because the middle class is shrinking dramatically. And so we're, we're so concerned about child abuse. Um, we are concerned that we're destroying our children because we're putting them in paid childcare all the time, right attachment parenting is the new in vogue thing everybody's reading dr spock and they're like where are your baby all the time um, but you can't cuz you got to like have a house and eat so you've got to send them to daycare and we've always been concerned like you know henry james victorian era always been concerned about who's caring for our children especially if it's gasp the poor's the poor's are caring for our children they're not going to learn proper middle class values And so all of these things at the same time, we're like, you know what? Satanism. Obviously what's happening is they're taking our children into secret underground tunnels and they're performing satanic rituals. (laughs) Cough, cough, QAnon. Like the same conversation is happening now, right? That there's secret cabals of evil working to hurt our kids. Um, But we really, I mean, really believed it in the 80s. The longest... And most expensive trial in U.S. history is still the McMartin Preschool Trial. It was like 10 years and hundreds of people were convicted and sent time in prison for things like, and it, it sounds bananas to say it now, because a two-year-old accused them of wearing werewolf masks and sacrificing babies and giraffes and flying. I mean, reading the court transcripts from some of this, you're like, How? How did you think this was happening? But again, because all of these factors, we were so concerned about protecting middle class childhood innocence that, you know, we were willing to believe this rather than looking at the social factors that were actually contributing to the decreasing middle class and and all of these other issues.
1: So we have all this going on and we also have this real push for material culture for young people who ha- want or have disposable income and it brings in things like the garbage pail kids right um and and also um some other things. So can you talk a little bit about then what you're seeing happening um that in the the monster the monster studies area. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in this time period.
0: My parents were very concerned that the Satanists were gonna get me at the mall. And one of the things I remember as a child was being told, like, you can't have any of this. You can't have the toys that are gross, the toys that are evil, because they're gonna they're gonna summon demons. And man, I wanted those toys more than anything. Like that just I was like, I need garbage pail kids playing cards. I need them. And I think that's really what happened socially is children were so locked down because we had historically just, you know, your mom puts you outside at 8 a.m. and is like, come back when it's dark. And we had gone from having that sort of hands-off parenting to this national panic of you have to helicopter your children constantly you must know where they are they must be within an arm's reach 100 of the time and kids were like no mm-mm, this is not i don't care for this no thank you and so as a way to push parents out of their space they're like i'm gonna find the nastiest grossest slimiest toy and i'm gonna be like here mom play with me um we're gonna eat skin You know, we're going to make skin in Dr. Dreadful's monster lab. And then we're going to like eat brains, green goo brains out of the, you know, jellies. or we're going to make cockroaches. And I think that's really what it was, is it was a way for kids to push back against strictures from overzealous parents really concerned about the satanic panic. And, man, marketing, like, it makes money, right? You're going to sell kids what they want. And if that's what kids want, we see a wave of these just absolutely disgusting toys. Like, just gross, gooey, stinky, sticky, you know, the more bugs and brains, the better kind of stuff. And the Garbage Pail Kids specifically, you know, those were created by the guy that wrote Mouse,
1: which I, you know, I feel like I should have known that, and I read, and I'm like, did I ever know? This? And then I'm like, there might be some of these in a box somewhere, maybe in my mom's basement, right? <laughs> but like, yeah, I was th- that is great.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have these artists who were after the death of horror comics because of the Comics Code Authority in the 50s, because we can't have nice things. Get start working on underground comics with an X and like for a reason. There's an X, um, for adults that are overtly weird and sexual and then those people start making toys for children in the 80s and you're like yeah that makes perfect sense i mean and it kind of does if you the way it sort of come full circle people who had been pushed out of their chosen industries told they couldn't make this kind of art because it was gross and weird start gaining an underground following mostly of people in their 20s and some teens like college student age um, and then in the eighties, when kids are like, "No, nah, I'm done. I've had it," then they start selling stuff to like eight year
1: olds. <laughs> and you know, another uh, th- speaking of artisan art, another thing, and somewhere probably in my house, I have one of those original book like versions of the scary stories um, yeah. we used to tell in the dark. Like I thought that was really interesting too. Can you talk a little bit about that and and that text and? And what was going on with that? So Scary Stories to Tell in
0: the Dark is one of the most, the ALA's consistently most banned and challenged books uh, because the Steve Gamble illustrations are nightmare fuel. Like, they just are. Um, And that's the point of them. The stories themselves are not scary per se. Most of them are folklore. Like, those books are legitimate folklore collections and they are sourced in the back of the books. He's got annotated bibliographies. I mean... it's the work of a folklorist, but the illustrations are just something else. And they redid them a few years ago and they had Brett Helquist do the new illustrations and they're not scary and they didn't sell. No one wanted them. (laughs) And so, and so they re-released the original versions and I have all three. I have the like 1980s version. I have the Helquist and I have the re-release versions. Um, And there were so many millennials on like Buzzfeed and pop culture sites being like, why'd you ruin these? These were great. Um, But what I think is so interesting about them is the way they become the currency of childhood in the late 80s. You get one of those books and you memorize the stories and then you go to the playground and you tell everybody else and you get to be the one who has access to the book. You're the one who knows the stories. You're the one who gets to go boo at your friends at the end, right? And so in the same way that kids collected and traded garbage pail kids cards or the little um my pocket monsters that you get in the cereals they trade those stories they become this currency and this way to gain essentially power and you know a way into a very specific economy of childhood that is just so fascinating to me
1: and and, and so just of speaking of stories, when you move into sort of what happens, so we move into the 90s, right, in the 90s and beyond, um, and you kind of look at these, the series fiction, right, in Twilight and post-Twilight, and um, so can you talk a little, I, I thought your take on Twilight was really fascinating, um, <laughs> uh, and, and what, you know, a lot of people either really love Twilight, but it's a fan love of Twilight, or it's like, I hate Twilight, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there's this, you know, like, I don't like how it's written. You know, there's a lot of, like, these are poorly written. But you really thought about what, how Twilight has changed how we think about sort of vampire and teen culture. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about then that moving into sort of the 90s, the serialized fiction, you know, Buffy and all that fun stuff? Oh, Buffy.
0: Um, Buffy and Twilight both like
1: bless their hearts.
0: They're doing things I don't think I don't think Stephanie Meyer meant for those books to be just as objectively queer as they are. That was <laughs> not her intention. But the I think the problem that a lot of '90s series fictions runs into is you're using vampires. Vampires date back to at least the Victorian era, and so you're talking about hundreds of years of history and. I don't care if you make him sparkle. You can't separate him from that hundreds of years of vampire history. And so in the 90s, vampires become an analogy for AIDS, right? For the exchanging of bodily fluids, for infection. And they become, they already were queer. Like there's a lot of work about how Dracula is very queer, but they come become inextricably queer in the 90s. And they also become part of the sort of teen pregnancy panic, right? That we're having culturally- in the early nineties. Um, and that is (sighs) dealt with federally through, um, abstinence only education. Right. But is dealt with culturally through monster fiction. Like this was, she was a good girl and she was, you know, this great, like pure, happy, high school student and then she had sex with a vampire and that's i mean then that's buffy right in a nutshell and he lost his soul and tried to destroy the world and it's very like don't do it don't do it um and it makes white teen girls the arbiters of like everybody's sexual experience and it's like if you do it the world's gonna end no like literally this is there are three examples in the first three seasons of Buffy of if you do it, this is what's going to happen. Um, and so when Twilight comes along, it kind of changes that because she does have sex with a vampire, admittedly within the confines of marriage. Um, and she doesn't immediately die and the world doesn't end. And then she becomes a vampire and they just have non-reproductive sex all the time. <laughs> it's great. That's all they do. And there's even this part where Edward's like, well, we don't have to eat or go to the bathroom. So we can just be together for months. (laughs) Like, this book, this is Stephanie Meyer, bless her heart. Like, I don't think that's what she meant to do, but it comes off as very queer. Um, It comes off as very, like, immediately out of that, you know, vampires are queer sex mode in the 90s and you know into non-reproductive sex purely for pleasure which is that's what queer sex is right non-reproductive purely for pleasure um as much as we want to and there are no consequences haha and so it's an abrupt shift right from the 90s like don't have sexual die the world will end to no but queer sex actually is great and we can do
1: it all we want and there are no consequences and it's fine so you have this and then you sort of you kind of talk about some of these other than sort of series of fiction series that are influenced by um what you're talking about here, including Monster High, right? Yeah. Which you t- talked about at the beginning. But can you talk a little bit about then? So Twilight happens and this happens, and then what do you start to see happening after that and sort of that post-Twilight?
0: Yeah. And so Twilight Happens. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about Twilight is the shift from the monster as teen to the monster as parent. Like before Twilight, we don't really get teenagers who survive monstrosity, right? Um, you get to be a monster. You maybe get get one over on the adults, but then you die. That's how it works. Um, that's how it worked in the 50s horror movies. That's how it worked... In you know, the 90s series fiction, you know, once you got bitten by the vampire, like that was it, game over. And Bella survives and she has children, and they're shockingly well adjusted. And one of the reasons why they're shockingly well adjusted is because she herself is monstrous and she embraces that and she just leans into it and she's like, Yeah, whatever you want to be is fine. You want to be a half vampire married to a werewolf, you do you. And so, because of that turn, we start seeing, I think, in the the mid to late 2000s and, and, you know, 2010s, 15s, and now 2022, a lot of monster series for the tiny humans, like the pre-K and kindergarten set, where the parents are monsters, the children are monsters, and it's fine. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Like, we acknowledge in, you know, Vampirina the Nicktoons series that there are humans out there who are like not ready. Adult humans who are not ready to know about monsters. But the first episode of Vampirina is is Vampirina's coming out story to her friends. And her friends are like, yeah, it's fine. You're a vampire. Okay. And like, it's very, it's very much a metaphor for queerness in a way that, again, I don't think they meant to, but that, like, that's how it reads. Um, and then you have like, super monsters, which is on Netflix now. Um, and again, it's, they have different legible identities, um, that connect to race or queerness or disability. And it's, you have, you know, humans in there as well. And they're like, fine, you're, you're monsters. It's fine. It's not a thing you have to hide. Everybody's cool with it. You know, we just hang out and we're we're accepting. And so it's become, Because of monstrous parenting, right, this idea that we are willing to accept our own monstrosity and accept it in our kids, it's become the turn in children's media now where, yeah, all right, you're a monster. Let's go on an adventure that's completely separate from that identity,
1: and you talk right, so you kind of end with this, like how to make that, how to make a monster story kind of thing, and and what what other things you're seeing. And so, can you just talk a little bit about maybe an example or two about like what you're seeing happening in film? I think most of those are film, and you know some other things you're seeing with these sort of writing monster stories.
0: Yeah, um, I talk a little bit about Monsters Inc. Um, and my favorite part of Monsters Inc. is actually the blooper roll at the end. Um, and I know blooper reels are a thing that Disney and Pixar do and they're delightful. Like the idea of a blooper re- reel for an animated film is hilarious, right? Because you know, there aren't really bloopers because there's no human actors, right? They, they animated that separately on purpose. Um, but by adding that blooper reel at the end... It suggests that they are actors, that this was something that was filmed, and that Boo really exists, and that Sully really exists, and that that relationship then is not something that's just created by the animators, but is something that is in the real world. Um, And that that makes the movie entirely different right? Like that's an entirely different take on, okay, so, you know, now it becomes sort of a history. Like we used to exploit children for economic gain through their screams. And now we work with them to produce laughter. And that's actually better for everyone. It makes more energy. It's more powerful. And that kind of blew my mind a little bit. I was like, this is okay. Okay. Again, I don't think they meant to, but this is how it reads. Like, it's just a totally different narrative with that blooper reel and this idea of, like, utopic childhood space, right? Where if we all just embrace our monstrosity and we work with children as monsters, we can create something that's like the space envisioned in that blooper reel, where we're all working together and we're more productive culturally, economically, and like the fear and panic and exploitation that are depicted early in that movie are just gone.
1: So what do you think? Do you, uh, do you see uh, uh, like thinking about what's happening now? What's, you know, the pandemic came all that Do you see, um, where do you think the next kind of monster, like, you know, what's the next yeah. What's the next phase we're moving into? I mean,
0: have you thought about that? I have. And there's so much stuff that's coming out on Netflix. Every time I think I'm going to cancel my Netflix subscription, they're like, "But Tim Burton is doing this thing that you have to watch. So there's a lot of new monster stuff coming, like a lot of new monster stuff coming out now, um, especially for teenagers. I just finished The Order. I'm annoyed there's not a third season. But that's, like, that's what we're doing. And it is directed at those specific audiences and it doesn't make the overtures towards like parental acceptance that some of the early stuff did i want to believe that we're going to keep going with this like utopic childhood space and monstrous parenting but i know we can't have nice things i know we're not allowed to have nice things and we're due for another moral panic like it's a coming um and the QAnon stuff which does look very much like the 1980s satanic panic i don't think is it like, I think we're, we're due for another one. Um, so I am, I am concerned that the next big push for monster media that we're going to get for children might try to be a return to that. You don't want to be a monster, do you? This is what's monstrous. Um, I don't think it's going to sell very well. Like, I don't think kids and teens want that. But it's possible that that's sort of where we are in our cultural moment um, I'll be interested to see what the market forces do right if there's a push for that kind of stuff and it just doesn't just doesn't catch on because really that's one thing that I learned doing this book is that young people are the arbiters of culture they just are like they're the ones who pick right the music we listen to the fashion we listen to the the language that we use it often comes out of marginalized communities, right? Queer communities of color. Um, but it's it's the kids and the teens that decide what we're watching and listening to this week. So if you... It doesn't really matter what, you know, the olds uh, want. If the kids don't like it, it's not, it's not going to be economically successful. It's not going to be a thing. So may, maybe I'm too pessimistic because I know my child absolutely would not watch or read or listen to any of that.
1: So I'll ask you my like final question. Cause we've been talking for a while about this. So um, is there something new you're working on that you want to kind of talk about or anything with this book? Since I know that it took a while to come out that you want to, so what's your last, what do you want to, anything else you want to promote? I
0: mean, I'm always, I'm always starting new projects, right? The best project is the next one. It Everything has that new research smell, um, and my husband laughs at me because he says I'm not allowed to, to start new things until I finish the last thing. Um, I have a pedagogy volume called Global Children's Lit in the College Classroom that's under contract with Lexington that will be out next year. Um, it's an edited collection with Tanya Nathaniel, who does the Children's Lit Global blog. We've got 15 chapters. We cover nine countries and 11 languages. So It's going to be fantastic. Um And then this is really, this is a study of like people on the margins, right? How we, people who don't have cultural power use the stories of monsters to expand childhood. The stuff I'm starting to do now is look at the inverse of that. How did we get to these cultural constructions in the first place? So like a history of literacy education, right? Who is centered in those narratives is what I'm starting to poke around in and work on and I'm really in the like sending friends memes stage of research which is you know that's before the crying and the cleaning the apartment and and then the acceptance and the actual research that's kind of where we are
1: well you'll get there right Right (laughs) at least you know the stages um, but it's been super great talking with you again. Uh this was Sarah Austin, uh the other monstrous youth transgressing the boundaries of childhood in the United States. Sarah, thanks for talking with me for new books in popular culture. Thank you. <laughs>